Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, but good morning. I want to say thank you to Byron. I know he's on his way out, uh, but I do want to say thank you to him for giving me the opportunity to be here this morning. And again, thank you for releasing those children before that bumper video played. Uh, but really, I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm excited to walk through God's Word with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, please go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 6. It's where we're going to be spending most of our, our time this morning. So as you're turning there, I want you to listen to this quote. So John Calvin, the 16th century reformer and theologian, he famously opens the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion with the following. He says this, Nearly all wisdom we possess that is true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. All all that we know, all that we, the only way that we can truly grasp this life, the only way that we can truly understand our position, our situation, the world, the context that we are in is to first know who God is and then in light of that understand who we are. Because by knowing God, we will recognize our need for God. When we know God, we will recognize our need for God. And once we do that, once we understand, our, who, we understand who God is and we, and we recognize our need for God, then God will lead us into repentance and then we will experience a radical move of God's grace in our lives that will change it forever and will change your desires to want to spend your life on mission for God. So those are, those are the four things that I, I, I want to see with us, that I want to look at with all of us together this morning in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. I want to see, number one, or I want us to see, number one, that Isaiah will have a big vision of who God is, that that vision will lead him into a true understanding of his own predicament, of how bad Isaiah truly is. Third, that he will once he recognizes this fallenness, that God will lavish his grace upon Isaiah and that God's grace will empower and compel him to pour his life out for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're going to see this morning as we look in Isaiah chapter 6. Four things. There will be a vision, there will be a confession, there will be a cleansing, and there will be a commissioning for Isaiah to spend and pour out his life for the sake of God and for the message that he's going to give him. So that's what I want us to see this morning, but I want to start at the very outset by saying this. This is a hard passage. It's a hard passage to preach because I somehow have to try and convey this message of the holiness of God, this, this unfathomable, unspeakable perfection and goodness of God. I have to somehow convey that message to you this morning, so it's a hard passage in that sense, and it's a hard passage to listen to because this, mass, this, this passage comes through profound judgment. This message that Isaiah brings comes through profound judgment. Look, not everyone will accept God's grace. Not everyone will share in this vision of God that Isaiah has. As a matter of fact, if we read further in the New Testament with Paul in the book of Romans, where he says that there are those who actively suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. So even as I'm preaching this morning, there's going to be people here who hear the Word of God and their hearts are going to be hardened toward God. So before I even read this chapter, I want to say with the author of Hebrews, look, today if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
when you hear God's word this morning, do not harden your hearts. Don't be like the people of Israel that Isaiah is bringing this passage to, this message. Don't be like Israel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and let's read this, read together. So it says this, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, your translation might say, cried out. In the King James it says, they cried out to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So before we, before we get into this, chapter, before we get into Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, it's important that we pause, that we take a moment to really understand the context, the culture into which Isaiah is going to be speaking. This is one of the most significant, important chapters in the entire book of Isaiah. Of all 66 chapters in this book, this one stands out as most significant. So who was Isaiah? Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet. He was, uh, this, this is someone who spoke for God, and this is around the 8th century B.C., so maybe 800, 750, 800 years before Christ came. This is when Isaiah was prophesying. And the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, those who were supposed to be heirs of these great promises of God, have rejected the law, and they have despised God's word. These people who, were, who had all these, these promises, these blessings that were supposed to come to them from God have despised him. They've turned their hearts away from him, and they have become like the nations around them. You see, Israel was supposed to be a light unto the nations around them. If you turn back, as a matter of fact, to chapter 2, we hear this description of this future vision of the people of Israel. It says, chapter 2, starting in verse 2, that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, out of the nation of God's people, shall go the law and the word of the Lord from 
Jerusalem. This was supposed to be the future of the people of Israel. This is, this is a vision for God's people, that they would be a light to the nations. And instead, Isaiah is speaking into a culture who have turned their hearts away from God. Instead of drawing the nations to them, they are being drawn toward the nations. They've become rebellious. They've become corrupt. And instead of continuing and moving forward in God's grace, they have refused it and they are now bringing judgment upon themselves. So God is going to remove his hedge of protection from around Israel. There's an illustration of, a, of a, someone tending or keeping a wine vineyard and they have the hedges built up around the vineyard to protect it. And God says, I'm going to remove the hedge from around my people and I'm going to bring the nations, I'm going to bring Assyria, I'm going to bring Babylon against them, and they're going to be destroyed because of their unrighteousness, because they have turned their hearts away from me. It's a hard passage. That's basically a summary of 1 through 5. So if you want to go back and read the preface to the book of Isaiah, the first five chapters, this is Isaiah laying out the foundations for what this chapter, chapter 6, is called to mission, to be a prophet. This is the context that it explains in those chapters. So we're going to see where we pick up here in chapter 6, how the Lord is going to use Isaiah to be his mouthpiece, to bring this message of judgment to his people. But in the end, we will see that God has not turned his back on his people. Israel is still God's chosen people. They're going to be refined by fire. They're going to be refined by God's judgment. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And we'll walk through this chapter. Uh, we'll walk through this chapter together. So it says this in chapter six, verse one: "In the year that King Isaiah died." So, who is King Isaiah, and why is it important that he's dead? Right. This is the only time in the Old Testament that a prophet marks his ministry with the death of somebody. All right. So this stands out. This is important. Isaiah is trying to convey something to us by pointing out that his ministry is starting in the year of King Isaiah's death. So, who is King Isaiah? If you go back. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, the whole chapter is about King Isaiah. He reigned over the uh, nation of, or the, the lower kingdom, the southern kingdom of Israel, the nation of Judah, for 52 years. And while he reigned, Judah was prosperous. Isaiah was a good king. He feared the Lord. He feared God. He sought after him. But in his latter days, he became proud. He became proud. And one day, he went into the temple and he wanted to burn incense. All right? And this was a role that was reserved strictly for the priests. This was not something that Isaiah was supposed to be doing, and he did it anyway out of his pride, and God struck him with leprosy, and he died unclean, and he died separated from his kingdom. He lived in a separate household for the rest of his life until he died. So he, he went into the holy place, and he presumed upon the Lord's holiness. That's King that's King Isaiah. So this is, this is the time period when Isaiah is having this vision of the Lord. It's in the year that King Isaiah has died. So in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So what a contrast between these two kings. You have King Isaiah, who grew proud, who turned his back on the Lord, who turned his heart away from the Lord, who went to the holy, of, the holy place in the temple where he should not have been, and the Lord struck him dead and he died separated. And then Isaiah sees the king lifted up high and exalted, train of his robe, filling the temple, ruling, reigning in sovereignty. Look, Isaiah, Isaiah's story is not unique, okay? He wasn't, he wasn't that different than the other kings that Israel and Judah had. There were, there were some good kings and there were some bad kings, but here's the truth. They all failed. The good kings failed 
and the bad kings, they all failed. The promise to God's people after King David was, there's going to be a king who's going to come out of your line, and his kingdom is going to reign forever. His kingdom will see no end. So when King David died, his kingdom came to an end, right? Go back to 1 Samuel. You can read the story of Israel's first king, King Saul. King Saul died. He failed. King David, who came after him, he died. He failed. King Solomon, he failed. We can keep going, all right? these These were good kings. King Rehoboam died. King Abijah died. King Asa died. King Jehoshaphat died. King Je- Horam died, King Ahaziah died, Queen Eliphaliah died, King Joash died, King Amaziah died, and in the year that King Isaiah died, King Jesus is alive, and he's reigning. What a contrast between these two kings that Isaiah is experiencing. This context, these people, this culture that Isaiah is in, what a, what a difference between these two kings. And as I said, it's, it's not that, just he's, that Jesus is living, but he's reigning, whereas Isaiah died ashamed and separated, and broken, Jesus' robe fills the temple. He's glorious. He's in all his majesty, and all of his splendor, the sovereign Lord on his throne. So listen, do not be like Israel. Don't be complacent in your faith. Don't turn your heart away from the Lord. Don't set up these kings in your life because they will fail you. And after they do, God will still be on the throne. He would still be reigning, and he will still be ruling. Look, Israel's problem was that they had turned their trust from God and put it in men. Isaiah reigned prosperously. All right? Israel did well. They built up armies of hundreds of thousands. They innovated. They were prosperous. But Isaiah became proud and turned his heart away from the Lord, and Israel turned their heart with him. They turned their back on the Lord. Don't trust in your prosperity. Don't trust in these things that you set up in your life because they will not be able to save you. Their religion, their activities that they participated in, their worship, their sacrifices, the Lord despised them. As a matter of fact, if you go back, he says, your prayers, I'm going to ignore them. Your sacrifices, I despise them. So this this is the people that Isaiah is going to in the year that King Isaiah died. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and he sees him reigning on his throne, and surrounding him are the seraphim, these burning ones, and they cover their face, and they cover their feet with their wings, these sinless, angelic beings who have done nothing wrong. They have never sinned or committed any sin, and yet they still are humble before God because they are creatures. They cover their face. They can't look into the face of God. Isaiah, in one way to look at it, you know, it's as if he's being brought into this angelic worship service, right? The angels, the seraphim, are, are worshiping. And, and you can get a clearer picture if you go back to the book of, or go forward, rather, to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 11. John, you'll read, has a similar vision as Isaiah did, that he's brought up into this, the, the heavenly temple, and they're worshiping. And this is what he says, that they saw, that he saw myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, singing the same song. Millions is what he's trying to describe. Uncountable number of angels singing, worshiping God. So you read the passage and it says he, right? It says that he covered his face, he covered his feet with two, he flew. And it kind of gives you this impression that there's just one angel around the Lord that's worshiping. No, it's millions of people. That's the, this is the, 
the picture that I want you to see of what's happening and where, where Isaiah is when he sees the Lord. He's brought up into a holy worship service with millions of angelic beings worshiping God. And when we look at the seraphs, we can see how we ought to respond in God's presence. They respond with awe. They respond with reverence. They respond with service. They, res- they respond with praise. And the song that they're proclaiming is one of God's holiness. It's what it says in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah, when you read back in Second Chronicles, he goes into the holy place and presumes upon the holiness of God and he's struck dead. And now Isaiah is brought up into the reality of that attribute that Isaiah presumed upon. It's in the presence of God's holiness. It's in the presence of the holiness of God and they're singing a song, holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew language, it stresses when it wants to stress significance of a word or of a phrase, it repeats it, right? They don't have exclamation points or put it off to the side in quotes or emojis, right? So they say it three times, holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in the entire Bible that an attribute of God receives this sort of description. The only time in the entire Bible. There's a, there was a wonderful pastor and theologian named R.C. Sproul who wrote a book called The Holiness of God, and in it he says this, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not, as, not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy, but rather that he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 that he is mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, 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 but it does say that he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. There's something important here that we need to see. What does it mean that God is holy? It means, if anything, that he's not like us. He's not like anything that's been created. Theologians, they call this the the creator-creature distinction, that there's God, and then there's literally everything else. God and in everything else. There's this fundamental distinction between who God is and his creation. That's what it means for God to be holy, that he's completely separate, completely other. So look, this refutes this idea that the universe, the world, that God is somehow a part of that, that he's somehow intermingled with the world. These ideas of pantheism or panentheism, these Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, they're false. God is separate, totally and completely separate. Those are lies. That's not holiness. And that's what the Bible says God is. It says he is holy. And they sing it and they proclaim it. And they say that the whole earth is full of his glory. So what does that mean? What does it mean that the whole earth is full of God's glory? It at least means this, that God is to receive glory in everything. Everything that God does, he receives glory. Even the judgment of his people that he's going to bring upon Israel, God receives glory. The ultimate display of God's glory is this, that the whole earth would be filled with the display of his saving grace. That's what it means for the whole earth to be full of his glory. 
that it would be filled with his display of his amazing grace, his saving grace, the beauty of his manifold presence, that there would be a display of his excellence, and that his people, when we see his excellence, that we respond by giving glory back to him through praying to him, through thanking him, through worshiping him, through walking in obedience towards him. So he's glorified in all the earth, and then we give that glory back to God through those things that I just mentioned, through living a life for God, we glorify him, and he receives all the glory. And we're able to do all these things because God is present. That's another thing that it means that God is, that, his, that the earth is full of his glory. That means that God is present with his people in the earth. God is present with us. We can experience, we can take part in this glory. So it says the whole earth is full of his glory, and it goes on to say that when they say this, when these angels, when they call out to one another, it says the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The whole temple shook at this, this pronouncement, just the proclamation of a totally separate being proclaiming the holiness of God caused the foundations of the temple to shake. Just the words, just proclaiming, God is holy, 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 and the temple began to crumble. So it means when it says the foundations began to shake, the columns began to crumble, the floor shook, and the house was filled with smoke. And at that moment, Isaiah realized he should not be there. Where Isaiah presumed upon the holiness of God in the temple, Isaiah quickly recognizes, I am not supposed to be here. And this is how, this is how he responds. Woe is me. If you read back in chapter 5 of Isaiah, he pronounces six woes over the people of Israel, these curses from God over the nation of Israel. And now he's proclaiming one over himself. Woe is me. And why does he do that? Why does he, why does he proclaim this, this curse, this woe over himself? He says this, For I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what is it about God that, that elicited this response from Isaiah? There must be some other understanding or something complementary to this holiness, this understanding of God's holiness as being other, as being separate. And, and there is. It also means this. For God to be holy, it's not just that he's other, though he is. It means that he is absolutely morally perfect and upright. His holiness means that in all of these attributes, he is perfect. And Isaiah recognizes before him that because of his sinfulness, he cannot stand before God. Listen, you are worse than you think you are. And God is holier than you realize that he is. And that goes for me too. All right? We are worse than we think we are, and God is holier than we think that he is. Look, Isaiah was of nobility. He worshiped. He prayed. He spent time doing religious activities, and he thought he was fine. He thought these were all good things, and they were. They are good things. But when he was brought before the presence of God, and he truly at that moment knew who God was, he realized he was wrong. He was wrong. He was not as good as he thought he was. He was not as good as he thought he was. And not only that, but he recognizes that he's no different than Israel. He's no, he's no different than those people who were around him. So look at me. If you're a Christian, all right, we're no better than anybody in this city. 
We're no better than anyone at our jobs, no better than anyone at our college, on our campus. We're no, we're no better than any of these people. What separates a believer from an unbeliever is that we're willing to admit that. We're willing to admit, I'm, I'm broken. All right? I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm messed up. That's the only thing that, that separates us. And I don't want anyone here this morning to think that, yeah, as I'm preaching this sermon on holiness, that somehow that makes me holy. My hope, my faith, my trust is in God's holiness and His only because I know that I'm not. Because I know that I'm not. So Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness. He expresses his need for divine grace and the Lord responds. The Lord responds to Isaiah's confession. You can read in verse Verses 6 through 7, he says this. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. There's a theologian, Alec Mayer. He's written uh, probably the best commentary on the book of Isaiah. He's actually written two commentaries on, on the book of Isaiah. And this is what he says about this coal. He says, the live coal thus encapsulates the ideas of atonement, of propitiation, satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing, reconciliation. So I summed it up like this. This coal represents the work of Jesus. Everything that Jesus did on the cross, that he loved you, that he died for you, that he took your guilt upon himself, that's what's represented in this coal. And the Holy Spirit brings us this same message today that Jesus is Lord and that your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for if you would confess with your mouth like Isaiah did. The same message. Isaiah had a profound vision of God. He, know, he knows who God is now. And because of that, he has a much better understanding of who he is. Just like I said in the beginning, to know God is to recognize your need for God. That's what's happening here with Isaiah. So the seraph puts the coal to his lips and his guilt's taken away. His sin is atoned for. And I want to look at, for just a moment, think for a moment, look at Isaiah's confession. Look at what he says. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What does that mean? If you look in the Gospel of Matthew, what does Jesus say about the mouth? That out of the mouth, what? The heart speaks. That's what I mean when I say that Isaiah did the right things. He participated in the re religious activities. He came to church. He worshiped. He tithed. But his heart was not in the right place. That you can do all of those things and your heart can still be far from God. This is, this is the part of the predicament that Israel finds themselves in. They think that because they're doing all of these things that God's going to cover their sin. He says, you're wrong. Your heart is far from me because you despise my law. Because you despise my word. Your hearts are far, far from me. But the only difference between Isaiah and Israel is he admitted it. He confessed it. He said, you're right. I'm unclean. I shouldn't be here. The only thing that separated him from the rest of his people is his willingness to make that confession. God is saying that there is a, there's a debt that must be covered, but because of your confession, I'm going to lavish grace upon you. I'm going to pour out my grace and forgiveness upon you. You're forgiven. And it's all the work of God in this moment. Isaiah didn't walk over to the altar and look at the coals, find one that looks pretty hot, and think that one will probably burn me and do the job. 
No, he was on his face before God, proclaiming his sinfulness, and an angel, after a command from the Lord, brings the call to Isaiah to bring forgiveness. So Isaiah, he's had this big vision of God, this big vision of who God is, and now he is deeply, profoundly aware of his own sin, and then he's also now had a profound experience of God's grace. And now Isaiah has a message. Now Isaiah has a message to bring to God's people. Let's read in verse 8. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So Isaiah, he's facing the same challenge that everyone faces when they hear God's word. Everyone. It's a challenge to respond. God has spoken. What do I do now? What will I do now that God has spoken? Now look, for the majority of us, this is this this doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to become missionaries, although praise God for the work of missionaries, but that's not necessarily what this, what this passage is saying. Look, your mission field is across the street. Your mission field is in the next cubicle next to yours. It's in the classroom. It's in your office. It's on the overnight shift. This passage is more than simply a passage about mission. This is a passage about submission. It's a passage about what are you willing to give up so that you can serve on the mission of God. Look, the prophets gave up their lives, literally, for the mission of God. We read in the New Testament, what does Jesus say about the prophets? You killed them. I sent you the prophets. I sent you my grace. I sent you this word of repentance, and you killed them. The prophets literally gave their lives for God's mission. So it's about submitting. What are we going to give up so that we can serve? Look, Isaiah left it all. He left his desires, his passions. He gave his life once he saw God and realized his grace. He didn't even know what he was going to do. That doesn't come till the next verse. He didn't say, well, let me, let me just wait. Let's step back. Give me a rundown. What are we going to be doing here? And then I'll let you know if I want to you know, participate in this or not. He said, I don't care what it is. I don't care what this mission is. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I want to be a part of it. I want to join you. I want to serve you. I want to submit my life to you. And Christian, I need you to hear this. I need you to understand something. Look, do not let your past sin hinder you from joining in on the mission of God. There is nothing that you have done in your past that will disqualify you from sharing the message of the gospel of God's grace. If anything, it'll be more profound. Look what I've done. Look where I've been. Look at my past. And look what God has done for me. That's what Isaiah did. Isaiah said, look, I'm a man of unclean lips. My heart has been far from God. But now that I've received your grace, I want to go. I want to tell people. So don't leave here feeling like because I've done these things in my past that I cannot join this mission of God. Because it's not true. It's not true. So what is it? What is this mission? What is this, this message that the Lord is going to give to Isaiah? And I want to be really honest about something here. This is, this is a hard verse. These are verses. These are, these are difficult verses. So many sermons stop at verse 8. They stop with this great call to mission, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to serve the Lord, and they don't go on to actually talk about what the message was. Byron and I had the same conversation as we were looking at what passage we were going to bring, uh, to, what we were going to preach this morning that I was going to preach. Like, should we 
Should we just preach 1 through 8? 13 verses is kind of long, right? That's a lot of verses. Doesn't redemption deserve a break from these hour-long sermons? And I said, absolutely not. They don't deserve a break from these hour-long sermons. Actually, I didn't even time myself this morning. Thank you, Ashley. She's she's already stepped out. We timed it. It's not not very long. Um, About as long as Byron's. But I told Byron, I was like, look, I can't. This chapter is too important. Verses 1 all the way through 13. We have to hear the whole passage. There's too much here. Look, the message that Isaiah brought to Israel was one of judgment. Absolutely. Absolutely. But within that message of judgment was a message of salvation, of a call to repentance, of God's grace. They're not going to be spared from the judgment, but God's grace is going to be in it. Isaiah was preaching God's truth to God's people, but the problem was that that truth, that message, was the very thing driving them further away from the Lord. And we're still being called to preach this message. We're still still called to go out and share this message to the nations, to our friends and our family, to our spouse, to our children. And to be honest, our culture is not that different from Isaiah's, right? I mean, we live in the, the Bible Belt, People are religious, they go to church, they sing songs, they bless their food out loud at Chili's. So they must, be, they must be Christians, right? Look, if they haven't had, if you haven't had a vision of God the way that Isaiah had a vision of God, and I don't mean a literal vision, right? We don't need to be all taken up into the, into the third heaven and see God. But if you haven't with your heart truly understood who God is in His holiness, you haven't truly seen him. You haven't truly seen him. Have you understood his holiness? And in light of that, have you understood your own unrighteousness? To know God is to know your need for God. And when you do, when you recognize that, when you confess that, God is going to call you. He's going to lavish his grace upon you. And you're going to want to spend your life pouring it out for the Lord. That's what, it, that's what happens when you respond to the grace of God. Look, sometimes God's word is going to bring light and salvation, but there will be times, absolutely, when it brings hardening, darkness, and unbelief. That's the truth. Paul tells the church in Corinth, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There's a key difference here. To one, this is a fragrance of life to life, and to others, a fragrance from death to death. There's people that don't want to hear it. There's people who are going to reject it. They're going to say it's foolishness. And Paul's going to say, I know, I told you. Right? Leave it to God. Leave that to God. When you go to sleep at night, rest easy knowing that you're not in control over whether or not someone confesses Jesus as Lord. The vision that you had It's the same vision that they will have to have, and you can't have it for them. You can't have this vision of God for them. That is God's work. God invaded Isaiah's life. God gave him this vision. God touched his lips with the coal, and God saved him. God will do the same for them, God willing. Our job is to just tell the truth. Our job is to tell the truth like Isaiah told the truth. And listen, if 
If you're here today and you have not experienced this grace, I want to say it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. And this message, this is not only for those who are here who may not be believers. If you're a Christian, listen to me, be afraid of your own hardness of heart. How does that reveal itself in your life? Do you have a lack of affection for God? Do you desire to be in his presence? Do you long to be around God's people? Do you have an unwillingness to share the gospel? Are you ashamed to proclaim his goodness? If these questions are making you uncomfortable, take a moment. Take a moment and address those areas of life, of your life. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, but it means that God is reminding you now in this moment to pause and reflect. Take a look at your heart, Paul tells the Corinthians. Take a look at your heart. This message is for Christians just as much as it is for anybody else. So let's look at verses 11 through 13. What is this? Did we read the message? I don't think we did. Let's go back to 11. (laughs) What is the message? 9 through 10. Let's look at verses 9 through 10. He says this, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull, their ears heavy, their blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That was his message, one of hardening. One that was going to turn the hearts of the people of Israel further away from God. So now let's read verses 11 through 13. It says this, Then I said, How long, O Lord? So let's pause for a moment. Let's look at that. Isaiah's response was not, Never mind. Now that I know what I'm supposed to be saying, I'd, I'd rather not. Is there another location? Is there like an all-inclusive you could send me to? I don't know if I want to share this message. Surely there's something different, a more palatable message that I could bring to the people. It's not how he responds. He responds with, okay, now that I know, just tell me how long. How long am I going to have to bring this message? And this is, this is how long. This is, this, is what, this is how long he says it's going to be. Look at, I really want us to see, look at the destruction that's going to be brought upon God's people because of their rebellion. He says this, how long, O Lord, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants? The houses without people, the land a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, even though some will be left, that's going to be burned down too. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. What I don't want us to see when we read this passage is to think that God is quick-tempered, that he is quick to anger, because that is absolutely not the case. We know that the Lord is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love, that he forgives iniquity and transgression. But, as it says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, he will by no means clear the guilty. God is patient and long-suffering. This message has been going to Israel for centuries and years and years promise after promise and chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity, time and time again, God brought this message of repentance to Israel and forgave them and forgave them and forgave them. And then finally he says, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm bringing judgment. 
Well, God is patient and he is long-suffering toward his people, but do not be deceived. There is a time when it will be too late to turn back and your heart will become too callous to accept the grace of God. I've already said it twice. I will say it again this morning. Do not harden your heart against the Lord. He is patient and he is long-suffering and he is giving you this opportunity now in this moment to turn to him. This is his grace right now in this moment. This is God's grace. But look at the very last line of verse 13. It says, The holy seed is its stone. Everything's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned down. And then some will be left. I'm going to burn that down too. But there's going to be a stump. There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be something left. This is not the end for God's people. There's going to be those who are set apart, who are going to accept God's grace. And God has a great purpose, and plan for them. And this remnant of people that are going to remain, the message of God's grace is going to continue until Jesus comes. There's going to be a group of people who know God and are willing to make him known. In Isaiah 11, it says this, there shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse a branch, and from his roots shall bear fruit, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. It doesn't end with judgment. It ends with grace. It ends with mercy. It ends with God being glorified. Darkness and judgment will not have the last word because of everyone here this morning. Darkness and judgment will not have the last word because you have a message to bring to this city, to bring to your workplace, to bring to the people around you. And look, I said a moment ago that there's going to be people who reject this message. That's the truth. There's going to be people that reject it. But look at what Paul says at the end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verse 28. Easy to remember. Paul has just quoted this passage in Isaiah, this this message to the Jews. And he says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So this message went out to the Jews, and it hardened their hearts, and it turned a nation away from God. And Paul says, I'm going to bring that message to the Gentiles, and they're going to hear it, and they're going to respond. There's still going to be people, there's still going to be some who reject it, but it's not going to be like it was with Israel. It's not going to be like it was with Israel. People are going to respond, and they were going to receive God's grace, and you will be able to see the grace of God change their lives forever. Because of the message that you bring, you will see God change someone's life forever. So as we close, what do we, what do we walk away with today? What, do we, what, do, what would I hope that we would walk away with today? I, I would hope that we walk away with the same thing that Isaiah walked away with. I feel like he walked away with four things. The same four that I mentioned at the start of this message, I want us to walk away with this afternoon. Number one, that we need a big vision of God. And again, I don't mean that we need to be brought up and and, and see God with our own eyes. What I mean is we need to see God in our heart as He truly is. And that when we do, when we see God, when we have this big vision of God, number two, we will be led to a true understanding of our own sin, of our own predicament. That we are worse than we think we are, and God is much more holier than we think that he is. And through that understanding, through knowing God, through recognizing our need for God, God is going to pour his grace 
out on your life. He's going to be gracious to you. This is what Isaiah writes at the very end. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God, through the Holy Spirit, brings the same message to us today. That your guilt has been taken away and your sin is atoned for. That is God's grace. And that grace, number four, will empower you. It will compel you, as Paul says, to pour your life out for the sake of the gospel. Isaiah was faced with a challenge of personal commitment. When he stood before God, he stood before him as an individual. He didn't stand before him as Israel. He stood before him as Isaiah. And he had a choice to make himself, a personal choice. He had to respond to God's word. His response was, I want to go. I want you to send me. If you look back in your Bible, if you look at verse 8, when he says, here am I, notice he doesn't say, here I am. That's important. That's an important distinction. Here I am says, hello, here I am. Can you see me, Lord? I'm over here. He says, here am I. He's saying, here am I with my, whole, with my whole person, with all that I am, giving myself over to you. It's not a distinction of location. It's a distinction of heart position before God. You know, I, I didn't read this in the first service, but I feel like I, feel like I, I need to read it this time. It's, it'll just take a moment. If you jump ahead, if you'd like to turn there, you can, but if you move ahead to chapter 12, of the book of Isaiah, the, the, these chapters, chapter 6, chapter 12, they form a bracket around this section of Scripture, chapter 6 through chapter 12. And in chapter 12, just like we read about that, that vision in chapter 2, where he talks about Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem, that it's, that it's going to draw everyone to it, and, and Israel was supposed to be this light to the world. Look at Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. This picture of this day that's going to come for God's people. It says this, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That's an individual saying this. And look, it moves now to a, to a group of people with joy. You you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's the day that is going to come. This does not end with judgment, there is judgment. But that judgment is going to refine the nation of Israel so that they can experience true joy and salvation in the presence of God. This, is not, this message does not end with judgment. It ends with freedom, with salvation. So as we close, you know, when I, I got the opportunity to preach at Redemption, uh, would have been almost two years ago now. We did the Greatest Sermon Ever series, and Byron, for some reason, asked me to preach my Greatest Sermon Ever. So I just reached into my drawer, five or six, and pulled one out and said, hopefully this is the best one. I'm not really sure. But when I was preaching that sermon, I, I preached over Luke chapter 11, and in that passage, it's very similar to Isaiah 6. Actually, I, I reference Isaiah 6 in that message, just the miracle of, of the great catch where the disciples go out on the boat, 
and they throw out the net, and they bring in this, this great catch of fish. There's so many that their boats begin to sink. And I said, I was listening to that sermon at the beginning, one day, you know, it's going to be great when, we, when redemption comes together, and we're mo- we have so many people are here, we're moving to two services. At that time, we only had one. And I just had to stop it. I had to, I had to pause my, my message, and I just thought, there I am. I'm going to be preaching to the first service, and then I get to preach to the second service. And I said, the only way that redemption is going to grow, the only way that redemption is going to continue to be blessed is if the people of God go out and tell this city about the Lord. That's what that message is about, that the disciples, their vocation was changed. They were no longer fishers of fish, but fishers of men. The same thing happens in this passage with Isaiah, that his vocation was changed, that he now had a message to bring out, to bring to the people, and it hasn't changed for redemption. The message has not changed. Our role, our responsibility, our obligation, our joy, it hasn't changed. That we get to go and sing God's praises, that we get to go and proclaim his goodness to make him known among the people, that hasn't changed. It's still the same, and it's going to be the same thing that causes redemption to continue to flourish. It's going to be the same, same thing. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.